The California recall campaign hits its final stretch. Gavin Newsom has moved this from being a referendum on himself to a referendum on one of these Republicans and where they would take the state. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A symposium examines the impact of climate change on development. Uh, We're going to have to be more intentional about where we build and how we build to address issues like drought and wildfire. And a new initiative to share the joy of home ownership with those who were historically denied. And the Cinema Junkie podcast talks Bollywood. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. As the California recall campaign enters the home stretch, campaign events are ramping up, and national political figures like Biden and Harris are joining in. Here's what Senator Elizabeth Warren had to say at a rally in L.A. on Saturday. Right now, California's in this recall election. It's quirky, but if you support Governor Newsom, all you have to do is vote no on the recall. With a week to go before Governor Newsom finds out if he will be able to finish his term, what is the outlook of the election as it stands now? Joining me today to talk about the recall is UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Professor Kauser, welcome. Thanks for having me. Voter turnout has been identified as being central to this election. What do we know about turnout so far? Well, so far, these mail ballots that are coming in are fairly representative of what the California electorate looks like, at least in terms of parties. So Democrats who haven't been all that energized with the recall, not nearly as much as Republicans, are indeed sending in their ballots, those ballots coming in with with a strong Democratic lead. But of course, as we often see with voting by mail, these ballots tend to skew a bit older. Uh, And the question is, will will young voters turn out? Will California's uh, fully diverse electorate turn out? And will this be a representative as well as a large electorate when all those ballots are eventually cast? For people who haven't voted yet, what do they need to know? Well, they've got uh, a week to either uh, mail it in. You can mail in your ballot by election day, or you can drop it off at drop boxes. There are locations all uh, all over California, as well as these vote centers, these early vote centers that will be open the week before the election. That's how a lot of ballots come back. And you can also track your ballot. Secretary of State and registrar, local registrars will work with you to make sure your vote is received. You know, voting has been underway for weeks with vote by mail. What do we know about people who have already cast their ballots? Well, we know that they're about two to one Democrats, but we don't know how they voted. What we know from polls is that Gavin Newsom seems to be really shoring up support among Democrats. Uh, and, and those Democrats who are on the fence early in the campaign, they've been sold. And, and that's probably because The alternative uh, to Gavin Newsom seems to be very clearly uh, one of the Republican candidates, most likely Larry Elder, the the, the talk show radio host. Gavin Newsom has moved this from being a referendum on himself to a referendum on uh, one of these Republicans and where they would take the state. That seems to be bringing Democrats back home, according to polls. 
There are a lot of names on the list to replace Governor Newsom should he be recalled, though many are, are far from household names, at least until recently. Uh, who is the top competitor? Yeah, there's no Arnold Schwarzenegger in this race. Uh, and Republican support has coalesced around uh, Larry Elder, who is leading in in just about every poll as the replacement candidate. He is a lightning rod with a long record of, of statements, many of which have endeared him to his supporters, but also been highly controversial to, uh, to, to voters on the other side. I mean, this guy recently took uh, tried to make the argument that people who owned slaves deserved reparations. Absolutely. Right. So that's a clear distinction between a, a, you know, a, a Democratic legislature that's put in place a commission to study reparations for formerly enslaved people. He has said he, he supported uh, a policy that Britain had of paying reparations to slave owners. That's as strong a contrast as you can get in anything. I think it does mark him as as a Donald Trump-like candidate. Also, he's been very strong on what his policies would be on COVID, uh, of, of getting rid of mask mandates and vaccine mandates. So what are the top issues in the campaign right now? Well, Californians have been focused on housing and homelessness and the affordability of California for a long time. Before the pandemic, this was the the main priority in Gavin Newsom's uh, State of the State address. That remains uh, a major issue. But I think the, the primary issue in this campaign, just like the primary issue that we've seen in American politics over the last year and a half, is how should we approach the pandemic? And this recall really generated its uh, enthusiasm and fervor when California's economy was shut down, when schools were shut down. Right now, uh, as, as schools reopen, as schools have been, been able to be open, as businesses have been, be able to, been open, how do you set in place the policies uh, that, that keep things open? That's what the parties have different views on. And that's, I think, how voters are making up their mind. You know, unlike the last uh, recall election in 2003, the Democrats don't have a major candidate on the ballot. What impact do you see that having on the election? Well, this is a big gamble by the Democratic Party. Gavin Newsom pushed for it because it set up the choice he wanted. It's Gavin Newsom versus a Republican and other Democratic leaders and all the major Democratic candidates went along with that strategy. If, if Gavin Newsom wins, uh, then that strategy paid off. But it's a big gamble. There's no plan B for Democrats. And, and if Gavin Newsom can't pull this one out, uh, that strategy of leaving no Democratic mainstay on the replacement ballot and, and risking uh, making it Gavin Newsom or nothing, that, that big gamble, if it doesn't pay off, will, will, will be a huge loss for Democrats in, in one of the nation's bluest states. And there's been a lot of discussion on how democratic or even constitutional the recall process is. Do you think the recall process will change in the future? I think Californians will take a very hard look at it. But remember, Californians t- thought about that in 2003. The question is, will will this recall be the moment that could lead to reform of a process that, that most Californians after 2003 and those I talked to today don't seem to be satisfied with? Can we have a sustained constitutional revision process? Uh, that'll be the, the question. And I think, ironically, if, if Gavin Newsom survives this recall and, and Democrats in Sacramento can push for reform without it sounding like seeming like sour grapes, that might be the the window of opportunity for finally reforming the recall. I've been speaking with Thad Kauser, professor of political science at UC San Diego. Professor Kauser, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
More than 8 in 10 residents in Imperial County are Latino, the highest percentage in the state. The county just east of San Diego also saw the state's largest voter swing between 2016 and 2020 elections in favor of Donald Trump. KQED politics reporter Guy Maserati traveled there to see what the region's shifting politics could mean for the September 14th recall election against Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. On a sweltering Saturday morning in El Centro, most shoppers outside a local supermarket were more concerned about their ice cream melting in the triple-digit heat than the recall election. Those who knew voting is already underway, like teacher Rosalba Jepson, had mostly made up their mind in one direction. Yes, get rid of him. This last year has been hard, says Jepson, who thinks Newsom didn't go through struggles like she did, adjusting to distance learning on the fly. Nobody paid me that extra time, and then he's enjoying all this. So, I, you know, I, I just don't think he's a good leader. Polling suggests that Newsom faces two big hurdles to remain in office. One, Democrats are less tuned into this election than Republicans. And two, Latino voters like Jepson are not falling in lockstep with the Democratic Party's no campaign. Those dynamics are on display in Imperial County, where 85 percent of residents are Latino. We are a border region, and so really that colors the way that we view our politics. Stephen Mireles is with the County Republican Central Committee. We have families that are here, but we have family in, in Mexico. He says a key reason that Trump cut his margin of defeat by 17 points last year was his focus on the border. And we certainly saw that in terms of the money that was coming into to the region to kind of secure our border, upgrade our fencing. Hiring more Border Patrol workers and upgrading technology means jobs and easier cross-border commutes in Imperial County. And I think that that was one of the issues of many that Trump spoke towards that really motivated voters that hadn't voted Republican or maybe even hadn't voted in many years. Trump also showed up. In 2019, he paid a visit to El Centro in Calexico. So behind us is the wall. That's the new wall. We've done a lot of it, and we're doing a lot more. Local GOP organizers like Daniel Flores were able to use Trump's visit to network. People that were present to show the support for President Trump when he arrived, people came up, followed up, they signed up to volunteer, and it, we got him more engaged. To be clear, Imperial County is still overwhelmingly Democratic. The party has a nearly 30-point registration advantage. But while Republicans have momentum, Democrats here have a turnout problem. The share of registered voters who cast a ballot was the lowest of any county in California in both 2018 and 2020. I think one of the, the biggest uh, barriers would be a language barrier. Yomar Aguilar helped start the nonpartisan group Via Vota last year to educate and engage voters. It wasn't anything easy. It was no easy feat because if you're a parent and you, you're not fluent with English and you have to work more than 40 hours a week, the last thing that's going to be on your mind is, how do I register to vote? And now comes the recall election with its own barriers. It's a unique ballot in an off year, and groups like Valle Vota are trying their best just to catch up. Right now, most people don't even know what the recall is about. That's Raul Reña. He won a seat on the Calexico City Council last year at age 23, with 70% of the vote. Urenya spoke to the pain of residents in Imperial County, which has the state's highest rates of COVID deaths and unemployment. Just the content of the message that people are suffering, it really spoke to um, 
the fact that they, they did want to change in leadership. In this recall, Newsom can't promise change. So to win over constituents like his, Ureña says the governor needs to remind voters of the recall campaign's original emphasis on immigration. After all, if you look at the recall petition, the very first complaint against Newsom is that his policies, quote, favor foreign nationals. It's not about COVID. It's not about stealing money. It's the proponents of this measure think that Governor Newsom is helping illegal immigrants too much and all of this racist uh, rhetoric that is coming out. And Durenia says the governor should come visit. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. <laughs> it's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Firefighters are finally gaining control of the Caldor Fire near Lake Tahoe, one of the mega fires that has plagued Northern California this summer. Climatologists say these hotter, bigger fires and the droughts that fuel them are directly linked to climate change. This week, land use planners from Southern California and Tijuana begin a series of meetings on how our region can respond to the increased risk of wildfire and other aspects of climate change. The conference will take on the issues surrounding what gets built where and how a changing climate will determine future development. As part of KPBS Climate Desk coverage, I'm joined by Bill Grayson, Executive Director of the Urban Land Institute Center for Sustainability and Economic Performance and Master of Ceremonies at the Brazilian Symposium. And Bill Grayson, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Can you give us an overview on how climate change will impact development in the San Diego, Tijuana region? And I mean things like, will there be fewer buildings built? Will there be a shift away from expanding development into undeveloped areas? I think climate change will have a profound impact across the world on what gets built and where things get built. As we see warmer, hotter summers, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, we're going to have to be more intentional about where we build and how we build to address issues like drought and wildfire. We also, with climate change, will see an increase in the severity and frequency of extreme weather events. So we'll have to build our buildings in ways that are easier to defend against these extreme weather events and be able to bounce back quickly. And how can developers get smarter about their projects in light of climate change? Well, um, Urban Land Institute puts out a series of research about how uh, real estate developers and owners can better assess and mitigate physical risks associated with uh, extreme weather events and the long-term threats of climate change. 
So some of this includes building with uh, new materials that are more resistant to things like extreme heat or wildfires. Some of this has to do with site design, how to organize your site so that it is better able to withstand an extreme weather event. Uh, and some of this is working with your city and with your neighbors next door to figure out how you can collectively work together to be better prepared to mitigate the effects of an extreme weather event and the long-term impacts of climate change. Can you give us an example of how climate change is influencing a land use decision or a new development? Sure. We're seeing this happen frequently across the West as increasing wildfires and droughts start to shape where and how people build in cities. So, um, for example, in Sonoma County, California, they are being much more intentional about how they permit new development, as well as how they build out energy and water infrastructure to make it better able to withstand and bounce back from wildfires. We're also seeing across pretty much the whole Mountain West, a number of cities thinking through more effective ways to drive drought-resistant development, whether that is a more creative way of assigning water permits or better allocating water rights, or thinking about passing land use planning decisions that have to do with the type of landscaping that commercial developers are allowed to use as part of the water smart development strategy for the city. Now, this resilience symposium is bringing together commercial developers and scientists, city and regional land use planners. Is everyone starting out from the same concept that adapting to climate change is crucial? I think in the last couple of years, you've seen a realization across public and private sector that climate change is having an effect on the long-term uh, real estate value. I think that most developers, investors, and land use planners believe that climate change is real and they're starting to see the impact of climate change on their operations, whether that's how the investors are thinking about where and how they'd like to invest in real estate land use, or what is the most effective way to build in these communities. Now, the symposium begins tomorrow. What are some of the subjects you'll be tackling during the series? The start of the symposium tomorrow is really a great way to get a foundational understanding of what's happening with climate change and how it affects real estate and land use planning. So it's really to help to set the stage for what's to come in the future. The series is titled Water and Fire. Obviously, across the West, these are two of the most dramatic and significant impacts that climate change is going to have long-term on real estate and land use planning. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into how those physical impacts of climate change are going to affect our cities, and then specifically what developers can do to mitigate those impacts. And many land use planning decisions are in the hands of state and local governments. How would you say municipalities in Southern California are rising to the challenge of climate change? Well, honestly, I think Southern California is like the rest of the country in that it's a mix. There's a recognition that land use planning needs to change, that we need to evolve with the changing climate. But it's a challenge to effectively and aggressively make changes to zoning and building codes and land use planning, because you're starting from a baseline where climate change really wasn't a major driving force in the decision makings of the past. So while you're planning for the future and when you're thinking about what development and infrastructure is going to be good for the next 100 years, at the same time, you still have to address the fact that our cities are already built. And so we're going to have to think about 
what we can do to the existing buildings and the existing infrastructures to also make them ready for a changing climate. And are these virtual and in-person symposium sessions, are they open to the public? They are open to the public. Uh, The best way to get involved in the symposium is to go online and register at sandiego-tijuana.uli.org. Terrific. I've been speaking with Bill Grayson. He's executive director of the Urban Land Institute Center for Sustainability and Economic Performance, and he'll be master of ceremonies here at the Resilience Symposium. Thank you so much. Thank you. San Diego's Climate Action Plan set ambitious goals to cut back on driving. The city has also endorsed Vision Zero, a movement to eliminate traffic deaths by making streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists. But KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says two recent street projects show the city often works against its own objectives. It's a sunny afternoon, and crowds of high schoolers are hanging out at Fair at 44, a brightly decorated plaza on El Cajon Boulevard between City Heights and Talmadge. In the corner sits Ana Rivera's food truck, Jibaritos de la Isla. Its Puerto Rican and Dominican cuisine is a hit with the neighbors. Our specialty is a plantain sandwich. Um, It's basically two fried plantains, lettuce, tomato, mayo, and then your choice of steak or pork. Business has been good for Rivera in the five months she's been at this location. But sometimes she fears for her customers' safety. While they sit and enjoy their food, cars zoom by on El Cajon Boulevard, one of San Diego's deadliest streets. Drivers often speed and run red lights. Rivera has seen some horrific crashes in one of them. The car was just totally flipped upside down. We had to, My husband had to pull the passengers out of the vehicle. Um, there was another accident that a car, you know, uh, hit another car and it, it ended up in the middle in the median and the driver was ejected through the passenger door. Given how dangerous El Cajon Boulevard is already, Rivera was shocked when she learned the city is planning on widening it further. It wants to shrink the size of the plaza and add a new right turn lane for motorists. I thought it was a little crazy. I thought it would add to a lot to the chaos that's already here. City traffic engineers are forcing the developer of an affordable housing project on this block to pay for the widening. It's another example of how car-centric planning has quietly continued in San Diego. That's despite pledges from city leaders to make streets safer and more pedestrian, bike, and transit-oriented. There's another example across town in Bay Park. One thing that you notice when you start to kind of walk along Marina Boulevard is that the sidewalks are not actually complete. Whitney Beard lives near a trolley station due to open in November. She says there aren't enough ways for pedestrians and bikes to safely access the station, so she's been organizing her neighbors to demand better. Yeah, we spent $2 billion on this trolley, and I mean, if you just kind of walk this road, it's just... There's literally no access if you're not in a car. It's, it's very dangerous, and it's, it's not good for the community. During construction of the trolley station, Morena Boulevard was narrowed from four lanes to two. Beard says she liked it better that way. Traffic got a little congested for like two weeks, and then after that, um, it was pretty smooth sailing, um, but the traffic was much slower. So you wouldn't go above 35 miles an hour on this road when it was one lane each way. But when construction ended, the road was widened again. 
Now drivers treat it like a freeway. Adding an extra lane, expanding the road capacity is oftentimes the first instinct of a traffic engineer. Colin Parent is executive director for the nonprofit think tank Circulate San Diego. He says the new goals set out in the city's climate action plan should have changed this driving first mindset. But just making a plan isn't enough. They're not self-executing policies. The city has to have implementing policies that are representative of the values that are in, in those larger documents. And a lot of cities, including San Diego, haven't caught up to the value statements that their elected officials um, have signed on to. Back where Ana Rivera's food truck sits, the construction to further widen El Cajon Boulevard hasn't started yet. It's scheduled to begin as soon as next month. But Rivera hasn't given up hope that Mayor Todd Gloria will intervene. It's something that we're not going to be able to reverse in the future. And I think the traffic is so bad right now. We need to be thinking more how we can reduce the traffic and reduce the speed of the cars. I think adding a lane isn't going to do that. I think adding a lane is just going to add more traffic, more cars, more accidents. The mayor has not yet said whether he'll stop the widening, but his press secretary sent KPBS the following statement. Like other issues we've inherited from the prior administration, the city needs to look back at this project and make sure it is consistent with Mayor Gloria's goals. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And welcome, Andrew. Hi, Maureen. Thank you. You spoke with a business owner who's worried about the widening of El Cajon Boulevard, but there must be those who support it. What's their argument? Well, the widening was requested by the Kensington Talmadge Planning Group, which is the neighborhood volunteer neighborhood planning group uh, for this area in 2015. And they argued that it would improve traffic flow. Uh, the city traffic engineers then evaluated the location and they determined that it could use a right turn lane based on their criteria. And that's th those criteria, that's really the point where the city's standards for street design came up against or in conflict with the goals of the Climate Action Plan and Vision Zero. So rather than looking at this corridor through the eyes of a pedestrian or a cyclist and, you know, how dangerous or harrowing an experience it could be when these cars are driving so fast, uh, the city's street design manual looked at it through the eyes of a motorist. So sometimes it's hard to get the city to acknowledge that these things are actually in conflict. The city loves to say it wants to improve streets and safety for all modes of transportation. But sometimes an improvement for one mode, namely cars, comes at the expense of the other modes like bikes, uh, pedestrians and public transit riders. Could an expanded boulevard make it safer? I don't see how it could, honestly. I mean, the, really the only improvement, uh, the only people who would benefit from a, a wider boulevard here would be motorists who are turning right. And, uh, you know, for them, it would allow them to get to their destination maybe a few seconds faster. Uh, but for a pedestrian who's trying to cross the boulevard, the distance that you have to cross would be longer. Uh, for cyclists, it creates an additional point of conflict. So there are cars that are um, trying to merge from the the lane to the right turn lane and there's basically just like a, a, a sort of intersection kind of area as you approach Fairmount Avenue here um, where cars might potentially be um, moving you know in the same direction as cyclists and and it would just create uh, more potential for collisions. Tell us more about the trolley station in Bay Park with limited pedestrian access. How difficult will it be to get there? 
It's pretty bad, Maureen. Uh, the sidewalk on Morena Boulevard has gaps in it, so there are parts where it's just dirt. Uh, the sidewalk that uh, some of the streets that feed into Morena Boulevard don't even have sidewalks on one or both sides of the road. And uh, where I interviewed this woman, Whitney Beard, uh, the sidewalk on Morena Boulevard, uh, as you're you know walking towards the trolley station, lacks a curb ramp. So if you're in a wheelchair and and you'd actually have to roll into the street next to cars that are going 60 miles an hour as sometimes more in order to get to that station and it's important it's important i think here to note that there were some mistakes i think in in the way that this trolley extension was planned it follows the i-5 freeway and this is was a choice that was made to reduce the costs the government already controls that land so it doesn't have to use eminent domain to you know uh build the trolley extension and the construction is also a little less disruptive to the neighborhoods uh but if you look at the walk shed, which is uh, what we call the circle that's about a half mile radius around the station, the distance that you know people are willing to walk in order to get to a, a transit station, a significant portion of that walk shed is taken up by the freeway. And that really limits the opportunity for transit-oriented development. So, And if you're west of the freeway, uh, you actually have to cross under the freeway, go through an underpass, and maybe wait at some intersections that are, you know, where there's a whole lot of traffic um, for a pedestrian crossing. And it just makes the whole experience really unpleasant and inconvenient and in some sp- spots um, really unsafe. You've reported in the past on statistics that show the city is not succeeding in getting people to cut back on driving. How is it doing now? It's not doing great. It's hard to get really good data on this uh, because we can't know exactly what every person's choice is for transportation every single day. Um, but they have models that they do. And and in the latest Climate Action Plan progress report, uh, all, all the modes that are more sustainable than cars, so transit, ridership, cycling, and walking, were all short of where they're supposed to be. The city is far behind on uh, increasing the number of roundabouts that it has in neighborhoods. It's far behind on uh, improving the the bike lanes or building new bike lanes. Uh, The pandemic, of course, um, threw things kind of out of whack and driving went way down uh, last year in April and May, but it's been creeping back up ever since then. And now we're almost back to where we were before the pandemic started. There are a lot of road changes going on with parking being eliminated, bicycle lanes and pedestrian walkways are being built in many of the city's most densely populated areas. Are the suburbs getting a pass on these changes? You know, it's interesting looking at some of the changes that big cities are making versus suburbs. There are some suburbs that are doing really, um, you know, cutting edge work on improving pedestrian safety and building more roundabouts. And part of that, I think, has to do with just the fact that many of them have more money. Uh, and, And another factor here, I think, is equity. So a lot of the wealthier and generally whiter uh, cities and neighborhoods are getting a lot of these um, changes and improvements for pedestrians, while neighborhoods uh, like City Heights, in this case, um, are, are having to wait longer for those projects, or they're just not happening at all. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. A new 
program launched in San Diego to help close the racial wealth gap. Three nonprofits have teamed up to provide black homebuyers financial assistance in purchasing their first home as part of the Black Community Investment Fund. The San Diego Foundation is one of those nonprofits. Joining me with more on how to get involved with the new homebuyer initiative is Pamela Gray-Payton, Chief Impact and Partnerships Officer of the San Diego Foundation. Pamela, welcome. Thank you for having me. Why was this program launched? Well, in September of last year, the San Diego Foundation and the Central San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce joined together with a group of trusted community advisors to launch the Black Community Investment Fund. Uh, We thought that by focusing on four disparities, which are education, employment, entrepreneurship, and homeownership, the fund would be committed to making long-term investments that have the potential to improve generational wealth and improve the trajectory of Black lives in San Diego. And so the Black Homeownership Program uh, is one of four initiatives that started last year. What are the qualifications for the Home Ownership Program? You know, besides the obvious being Black or African American, uh, the buyer has to be a current resident of San Diego County. They have to be a first-time home buyer, meaning that you can't have owned a mortgage in the last three years, and you have to be part of a household earning less than 120% of San Diego's area median income. Have you received a lot of interest in the program, and how many home buyers do you think you'll be able to help? Well, our partners at the Urban League of San Diego County say that their phones have not stopped ringing since this program was first announced on the 21st of, of August. Uh, They're receiving over 100 calls a day from prospective buyers, realtors, mortgage bankers, and folks who are just seeking information about the initiative. What we are really hoping is that the initial 25 grants that we know we can fund will be supplemented by additional donations to the fund uh, to really create an opportunity for more families or individuals uh, who qualify to purchase a home with the grant from the San Diego Foundation. Uh, Earlier, you mentioned the disparities that exist here in San Diego. Talk to me more about that. Uh, What housing inequalities exist here uh, that necessitated this program? Nationwide, there is a a significant homeownership gap between Black families and white families. Uh, And so here in San Diego, that gap is about 30%, meaning that roughly 30% of Black families in San Diego County own their own homes, opposed to 61% of white households. And so we're hoping, you know, through this program, uh, we can take, we can make a small dent in that. But, you know, frankly, we don't want to be alone. We want others to step into this role and, and support Black homeownership uh, in addition to the work that we are doing. According to a study by the Urban Institute, the growing racial gap in home ownership contributes to broader racial disparities uh, that currently exist with wealth accumulation. And so the further or the wider that gap between Black families and other families grows, the greater the disparity and the impact in other areas. And how has that historically shaped San Diego? What I can share 
is that in 1936, the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation established boundaries around neighborhoods in San Diego. They did this across the country. San Diego was, was one of many cities where this was happening. And so based on resident income levels, the race of, the, of most of the people in the neighborhood, the ethnicity, uh, they grade, graded them. They graded these communities. So if your community was an A, you were likely to get a home loan in that neighborhood. Uh, if your grade was a D, it was going to be hard to get a loan to purchase something in those communities. They considered a D to be a hazardous loan. And so meanwhile, you know, consider that at the same time, there were deed restrictions prohibiting people who were not of the quote unquote Caucasian race to purchase homes in areas of San Diego, which meant that you were you really were steering people to certain areas of the community where they weren't going to be able to buy, but you were essentially putting people in certain neighborhoods uh, and not allowing them access to communities where there was greater tax generation, access to better schools, et cetera. And then when you add to that the GI Bill, you know, which sadly the federal government permitted racial exclusion to be one of the many problems with the GI Bill. So it denied benefits to Blacks who were returning from the war. They weren't able to use their GI benefits to buy homes like their white um, fellow soldiers were permitted to do. It also meant that for many Blacks, college was not going to be something that was subsidized through the federal government, whereas white soldiers were allowed to go to college using their GI benefit. So it really impacted the ability for families to, to improve the quality of life, to earn an income, uh, to compete in what was becoming an ever more competitive market. And what's your hope for the Home Buyers Program moving forward? Our hope is that people are able to realize the joy, you know, of homeownership, uh, the pride that comes with homeownership, the ability to use that home, that investment to change their lives, to send their kids to college at some point, and that, you know, more donors will contribute to the fund to support uh, additional home buyers. I've been speaking with Pamela Gray-Payton, Chief Impact and Partnerships Officer of the San Diego Foundation. Pamela, thank you so very much for joining us. Jay, thank you very much for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The second part of Cinema Junkies' tribute to Indian cinema, Hooray for Bollywood, is now available, and here is an excerpt. Bollywood, of course, is a term used to describe the Indian film industry based in Mumbai, with the word meshing Hollywood with the former name of the city, Bombay. In part one, Cinema Junkie host Beth Akamando and Moviewala's podcasters Yazdi Patavala, Rashmi Gandhi, and Joseph Jan define the over-the-top style of classic Bollywood cinema. For part two, they explore what Bollywood means today.
Welcome back to Cinema Junkie's celebration of Bollywood. Let's pick up with Rashmi looking to what marked the end of Bollywood's golden era. Yeah, for me, um, Beth, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I think the slump really happens mid to late 80s. For me, it feels like it's the advent of VHS and a lot of Indian films being put out on VHS versus releasing cinemas. Cinemas are dying. And so there's no place to actually watch these big epic uh, movies that we were used to seeing. And in addition, I think the quality and the availability of Indian TV, both in the UK and in India, starts to get much better. So now instead of getting the three-hour movie, we get the 20-part series. And the dramas are really good and they start to have storylines that families care about again. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, video piracy combined with availability of good television kind of brought that golden age to an end. And also I think that there was this whole generation of exalted filmmakers who just kind of wore out and there was nobody, nobody left, you know, to ably take their place, at least in that early 80s time frame. And when we were talking about Bollywood cinema, one thing that is interesting is that, Rashmi, you were in London, and Yazdi, you were in Bombay, and yet some of what you're talking about in terms of the experience of these films and watching them are very similar, and they're very much tied to food and to family, it seems. Yeah, I think the films, to this day, continue to be almost surgically constructed so that anybody who has any kind of emotional connection to India, that it'll elicit that reaction from you. Even now with movies that are being made, there are some which are very explicitly catered towards the non-resident Indian population, whereas there are some others which are catered towards the more rural dynamic in India. So I think these are very precision made and they are made in a very calculated way to kind of get that reaction from people regardless of geography. Yeah, Yazdi and I are always surprised by how similar our experiences of movie-watching Bollywood were, even though we were growing up in on completely different continents. And I think exactly what you said, Bollywood is a family time. Most Bollywood movies are rated such that grandma can watch it with toddler. And so I think that's how we connected as a family growing up. And so now, do you see Indian cinema as kind of, or recently, do you see Indian cinema as kind of going through a resurgence or a, a new wave? I do, and I think, you know, this new generation of auteurs, if you will, have come to the fore in the last 10 or 15 years, and in my mind at least, created this second golden age of cinema where they've kind of challenged you know, the shackles of the typical formula of, you know, your 60s, 70s Bollywood movie. And they have been kind of breaking the norms in terms of the kinds of stories they tell, the kinds of actors who are in it, in taking on very difficult subject matter, etc. And I just love that, you know, sometimes I'm besides myself thinking that not 15 years ago, you know, it was taboo to watch uh, you know, two people kiss in Indian cinema. It was a huge taboo. And, well, know, that's why trees were created. Yeah, and there was, I mean, and there was so much suggestive symbolism in those movies, and that that symbolism itself was far more vulgar than you know two people kissing. And you know, there would be like these trains going into tunnels, and you know, these flowers uh, shaking at each other, and there's the all this kind of, <laughs> and then you know, people uh, hiding behind the trees is when I said the trees. Yeah. 
And then, you know, they would do these very, very suggestive dance numbers where, you know, the Sri Devi's wearing the thinnest sari and it's raining. She's completely drenched. And that was okay, but, but you know, no, no kissing. But they've created a new kind of age for Indian cinema where they're pushing the boundaries and I can't have enough of it. And I think also women directors, Gurinder Chada, Meera Nair, doing out of India stories as well, like the bandit like Beckhams and the Bride and Prejudice. Lonely Mr. Coley from Los Angeles came to Punjab on one bent knee. Monsoon Wedding, Kama Sutra, all of these movies that cross the boundary of the Indian subcontinent, I think have also helped to propel Bollywood as we thought of it forward. Since Joe was a little quiet on the first podcast because he wasn't really as involved in the classic era of Bollywood cinema, let's start with you, Joe, and tell me about a film that from recent Indian cinema that really has stood out for you that you feel people need to see. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think like many people, I found the, the Bollywood concept, the idea of going to see a film that was Bollywood, just almost a bit tiresome. Like the idea was going to be very long, very time-consuming it would be what you did that day and so I was kind of resistant for a while to seeing them in cinema we'd watch them at home which was great you had the pause button but we went to see a movie a few years ago called Joda Akbar that was a huge epic movie they played it actually locally here in San Diego there's a cinema in Poway that does play big uh, Bollywood films um, and I kind of went into it with eyes rolling thinking oh here we go you know it's gonna be a big you know all singing all dancing Bollywood number and it kind of was three hours and 33 minutes in length but I enjoyed every single moment of it and I think one of the things that really worked well for me was just the scale of it I think it was just it's a very classic tale it's a, it's a tale from history uh, it's set in Rajasthan which is you know a very historical kind of land of kings part of india and um you know that movie was just it had everything it had the songs it had a great soundtrack by a.r rahman who does so many of the modern indian theme tunes You know, it wasn't necessarily an all singing, all dancing kind of Bollywood, but it was, it was just very big in its themes, big battle scenes. Just For me, I think it, it reminded me that Bollywood could do big, big Hollywood blockbuster style things, which I think in my mind I had at the time, most of them were kind of, you know, 70s, kind of slightly chintzy special effects that were a little suspect and, you know, added sound effects and dubbing, things that didn't quite work for me that felt very kind of cheap filmmaking, but this was big, it was epic, it was well produced, it was beautiful to look at uh, and just, just a stunning movie. That was Beth Accomando speaking with the Movie Wallace podcasters Yasti Patavala, Rashmi Gandhi, and Joseph Jan. To hear the complete list of their recommendations of Bollywood films, go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.